listening to episode 69 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Josh Havens. And I'm Chris Lambert. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. So over the past couple of years, we've been doing this thing called Daily Growth Discipleship, where our goal is to help people create a lifestyle of discipleship. That's one of our personal goals is to follow Christ and create a lifestyle of discipleship ourselves. And uh, we want to help other people learn how to do that. Uh, We had a previous podcast and website called Theology in Progress, where our goal was to grow in Christ through having open and honest conversations. And we got into some really deep stuff there. And one of the things that we really enjoyed about Theology in Progress was really diving into some of the the ins and outs of theology. Uh, one of the things that we've learned is that theology, if we understand it, is highly, highly applicable. In other words, the way that we do theology affects our everyday lives. And so as we go about trying to create a lifestyle of discipleship, I think it's almost inevitable that we in some way have to understand a little bit of theology. And so one of the things that we've been chewing on, I mean, we've been chewing on this question for a while, like a really long time. And that is, why is scripture authoritative? Why should we even listen to or obey what the Bible says? Um, And we've had that question asked from a few people who listen to uh, the Daily Growth Discipleship podcast. We've had that in uh, both personal conversations with each other, with other people here at work, with other people that are uh, in our ministry network. And it, it's, a, it's a fairly common thing to think about. Well, and we, I think the one of my biggest problems, you know, learning about this issue, and then I think a lot of other people uh, feel this way as as well is we take it for granted that the Bible is the authoritative word of God in that we it's it's an assumed thing that it that like it is it just is yeah and, and so we just that's the that. that's the book that we that we look to and you know we both have young children and they are growing up quickly and they like to ask all the why questions now. And this is like one of those first questions that we like to ask as children and in Sunday school. And we're usually just given a nice Sunday school answer of, you know, basically what you just said. Well, you know, it, because it is or the Bible says so. And, you know, we quote Second Timothy 3.16 and, all you know. It's all God breathed and uh, it's yeah. useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness. That's right. And then when, once you get a little older, though, and you go to college or you start interacting with other uh, friends, co-workers who didn't grow up in Sunday school, they weren't given that answer, um, you know, they didn't grow up in church, they don't really buy that answer. And so then you start getting challenged in your faith, and then this is when we start getting, you know, we hear about those stories of people falling away when they when they go off to secular colleges and things like that. So, yeah, we are very passionate about theology, and I would even consider it I, I would consider theology it the the pursuit and the under number one again one of our tenets with theology in progress is that you are a theologian. We all are now, not whether necessarily we like it or not, yes. whether we're doing it actively or not. We are. You are acting. You are thinking about 
and acting on big questions about who God is and and then how that the answer to those questions, whatever answer you come to, you live your life based on that. Even if the answer is there is no God. Exactly. You live your life based on that. And so you are a a theologian. As a disciple, though, I think doing theology becomes an essential spiritual discipline that we must take up. Otherwise, we are not going to follow Christ well. Barely at all, potentially, <laughs> if you're not doing theology in, in, in some kind of an intentional way to, to ask the basic questions of uh, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be an apprentice of God's son? And, you know, all the other things that come into play when, it, when we start asking questions like, who is this guy named Jesus who showed up claiming to be the son of the God of the Israelites in the Old Testament and then who goes and dies on the cross? Like, what does all that stuff mean? Those are, those are big, deep theological questions that we're asking now. And we all claim, I say all Christians, by and large, for the last 2,000 years, that the Bible is our authoritative infallible source for all of that information. That's where we get our information from. But the questions must be asked, why and then how do we go about attaining those pieces of information? Because again, there are lots of seemingly contradictory material in the Bible that other people like to bring up, especially if you didn't grow up in the church and you don't just sort of accept this thing uh, uh, blindly, like many of us do when we're, you know, again, first growing up. We just, we hear it over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And then you start to, uh, you're looked down upon if you question it. You don't have enough faith or you might not even be a real Christian if you you question this uh, sort of stuff. So we want to question those things. Not Not in an attempt to disprove or to lose our faith, or some sacrilegious perspective. We want to question those things so that we can build a firmer foundation on what has been historically a bedrock of the Christian faith. And one of the things that I really, really enjoyed that we we emphasized a few times at Theology in Progress was that if something is true, if something is valuable— it will withstand scrutiny. It will withstand your questions. And again, our heart's not to pull back the curtain and expose the man behind the curtain, in a sense. Our, our goal is to dive headlong into this quest for truth, trusting God that what we will find at the end of this is a deeper truth that is more applicable for our lives today than we've ever thought possible. And we believe that the Bible will withstand our questioning. The Bible will withstand our, our doubts um, because we do believe that it is revelation from God. Um, and we'll get into here in a bit why we think it is revelation from God. Um, because I mean, that's, that's one of the questions, right? Yep. Why, why is, how, how do we know that the Bible is actually God's revelation? That's right. I mean, we call it the word of God all the time. So clearly it is. In fact, this was one of my, uh, pet peeves that got me into doing a lot more serious study. So I was in seminary at the time 
I had the opportunity to write a paper on this, and so I took it. <laughs> you know, take advantage of the opportunities you have, right? So one of the questions that I got from students, especially like young freshman students, was or answers they had to answer a question basically this like why is the bible the authoritative infallible mm-hmm. word of god again all all three of those little phrases are very important to what you know we could go through and dissect i don't know if we're going to get all, all of those sort of things <laughs> but let me let me just word of god we so quickly equate that word of god with the bible in fact, if you go back and listen to all of our podcasts, I bet you you will never find me referencing the Bible as the Word of God <laughs> because I don't do it. You intentionally try to avoid it. That's right. I call it Scripture. And that is because we're, you can call it we're, the, the Bible the Word of God, as in like, God, these are the words or the, this is the revelation spoken by God. If you're going to write this, though, you're going to say word with a lowercase w. Most of the time, though, when you find this written in Scripture, spoken of as the Word of God, you're going to see it capitalized, the Word, capital W-O-R-D. And that's because it is properly referring to Jesus as uh, the Logos. You may have heard this word. This is, you know, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, all that sort of stuff, right? John 1, 1. I'll, Josh, Josh can quote it better than I can. <laughs> I always sort of mess it up like that on purpose. So now, I, now it's a now it's a habit. But that so, but that's what Scripture is um, talking about properly when it when it talks about the capital W word of God is the logos. And again, that's its own conversation. We can we can get into what the Greek word logos means maybe in another podcast. That's that's a fun one. Uh, maybe if Josh wants to hit on it a little bit, we can we we can delve into it. But <laughs> my, my point is, is I've had students mistakenly compare Jesus as the the actual Word of God, the 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 second person of the Trinity becoming incarnate flesh as the Word, and the Bible being this expression words the revelation of God. And they've equated those two things to where mm-hmm. I, I had one student even say that the Bible was the face of God. Now that's just heresy on the face of it, right? You know, it, it, it's heresy made in ignorance, right? Yeah. Young students, we all, we all, we all make mistakes. And so that, that's nothing to, uh, that's nothing to be ashamed of. I've made those mistakes as well. And it's, it's only been through this, you know, journey of, of study. And that doesn't mean that we have everything figured out or are right by any means, I think this is also, in all of my ramblings, I think this is a pause to just say this is the purpose of the process of theology is to better understand the process and and better understand the God whom we serve. And so not that we're going to get everything right, not that we can know that we've gotten everything right, <laughs> but that in some way we are striving together to work out our Salvation, And in a sense, this for me goes back to identity. I, I don't know why I take it back there a lot, but it's step one in it's my step book one for, for a reason. reason. Yep. The, it, it, those of you who've got kids, if your kid is trying to learn something new for the very first time, uh, whether it's walking, talking, riding a bike, um, whatever, the, whatever the, new, the new thing is that they're trying to learn, 
they do it imperfectly. They do it so imperfectly. And sometimes the first attempts are even laughable, though you try not to laugh because if, if they're old enough, that might shame them and keep them from, from doing anything in the first place. But you know what that's like. You just so badly want to say, this is the right way. You got to do it this way. Um, but what do, you, what do you do as a parent? You graciously and, and patiently walk through the learning process with them. And we have to make the same kind of space in the Christian life for us to experience that as well. We have to make space for us, for ourselves, for our, our, our fellow disciples who are following Jesus in this lifestyle of discipleship with us. We have to allow them the space to learn and explore in, in a way that doesn't shut them down. Mm-hmm. And, and so often the, the response, believe the Bible because the Bible says so, Yep. shuts them down. Absolutely. And I, I think what we really have to get at is, is fundamentally understanding what really is the Bible. Yes. Um, because if you're going to explore, if you're going to try to learn and figure things out, I can't really think of a better place to start. Like if you want to understand why the Bible is authoritative, we were talking about this before we started pushing, before we hit record on the podcast, you do have to understand essentially what this book is. And yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Mixing up or conflating the word of God, capital W with the words of God, little W is a problem. Um, but it's a problem that I think Jesus himself clarifies, um, especially at like the end of Luke where he's talking to the, uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus and he says he 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 describes to them how all the law and the prophets in mm-hmm. other words all the old testament which was scripture at that point pointed to him they weren't him they mm-hmm. pointed to him and we can take a cue from Jesus here and learn a little bit about what the bible actually is yep absolutely and i think that is a big first clue is to so in everything right when you when we learned about this as good freshmen in Bible college, our faith, you know, in our understanding especially in what the Bible was and what Christianity is, was uh, was shaken a little bit. Not to where I think we were, you know, close to <laughs> turning our backs on it, but it's just like you feel like what was once rock is now turned to all that shifting sand and you're like, whoa, 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 what just, what just happened? I got the rug pulled out from underneath me. And so I think, I think it's, it's important for this conversation before we go any further to state what I think this is a little bit more of a deductive or propositional form of arguing instead of inductively reasoning you there. I think it's maybe good to start out at the beginning and just say... Start with a conclusion and then point through steps one, two, three, this is why. That's right. Fundamentally, though, we do not believe in the Bible as Christians. Fundamentally, we don't serve the Bible. We believe and serve in Jesus. The Jesus who we believe is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and all that that entails. So... let's, let's Let's pause and just appreciate exactly 
the distinction that you just made because I think this is something that can be really, really confusing for people. Especially if you're still trying to, to work through what we were just talking about a few minutes ago with cup, capital W, little w, word of God. Jesus is not the Bible. The Bible is not Jesus. There is a distinction between those two things. We trust Jesus for salvation. And this is the hard thing to swallow right here because it just sounds bad. Mm-hmm. We don't trust the Bible for salvation. Exactly. Now... Some of you might even be thinking this or about to say, yelling it at your <laughs> your phone or speaker. But the only way we know about Jesus and that salvation is the Bible. Kind of. <laughs> That's a really good answer. Kind of. And this is where we get into those other two phrases of that sentence I quoted before. The infallible authoritative word of God. So we need to talk about infallible and authoritative is so because that's how we're going to get to how like or why this is the kind of source <laughs> that that's going to be that kind of so oh please be patient with us I know I guess we should all we should state we do definitely believe that it is authoritative and infallible and we do we do learn about Jesus yeah <laughs> God's special revelation in in scripture that's absolutely. right absolutely ultimately that's that's where our allegiance and that's what our whole purpose is is to do. Now, and, and I do believe once you've captured this vision, this will change your life as it has changed ours to to have a, a, a better, more sturdy foundation on which your faith rests because it's not on the Bible. It becomes on, on Jesus. So when somebody brings up or says like, hey, this doesn't make sense in the Bible, you don't have to start thinking, oh, wait a second, everything I believe is wrong. If you fundamentally believe in the person of of Christ and believe that he believed because he references you know uh, the authority of scripture then I don't think I, I think I think you've given yourself a much easier path to say that's a good point I don't understand that either that's weird I need to go look at it okay so again one of the other things that helped me really our Hebrew teacher made this point right we pick up the books uh, the, we pick up a Bible and we think they're just everywhere, right? It's one of the most printed, owned copies of a book ever, least read, but there, there's <laughs> lots of them out there. And so we think of this thing as just a modern day book. At best, an anthology, right? It's a collection of books. But we have to, I, I think when we approach the Bible, we have to approach it and appreciate it for what it actually is. Documents that are thousands of years old in some cases. Actually, all the cases, they're thousands of years old. But in some of them, they're like three to 4,000 years yeah. old. And these are not modern literature. They did not come to us in the King James English or our uh, New International Version English. You know, these were written in ancient Hebrew and Greek dialects that aren't spoken anymore, that have to be carefully studied in, in cultures that. And this took place in cultures that uh, we know very little about. Which, by the way, I'll point out for all of us Americans in the audience, was not for the purpose of objectively laying out step-by-step an accurate historical record. Amen. <laughs> that's true. We can get onto that later. No, but but again, so but that, that that's a good piece. Yeah, that, but that's a good piece, right? So we have to understand that. that. That's part of understanding what the Bible is. So it's not a science book, as we would understand it. Genesis... You know, 1 through 11 is not laying out a scientific 
history of how the earth was created in the way that we would want it to. So again, if you're if you're approaching the text in that way, you're going to be woefully disappointed because that's not the purpose of it. You're asking you're asking questions that the Bible never intended to answer. Would you would you ever ask of the color yellow, how loud is it? I'm paraphrasing from C.S. Lewis here. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Because it's fundamentally the wrong sense that you're using to identify what yellow. Yellow is a color. It has no sound yeah. that we know of. That's a different Not issue. Not in this dimension. Not in this dimension, exactly. <laughs> no. And so, again, the same thing must be true with Scripture. We have to ask of it questions that it can legitimately answer. And the, the difficulty is, I think when we look at the word infallible, we really look at it from our own cultural lens that means it is objectively true and it can be proven using all of the scientific methods that are available to us right now. Yep. We can objectively prove that this thing will not fail. That's, that's what we like to approach it with. Absolutely. Which is super problematic, especially when you hit poetic literature. Yeah. Well, the whole thing, again, we, we, we also, so I'm going to, we're going to break down the history in like a little 10 minute history s- session because I think it's important to we understand. We need theme music for this. <laughs> yeah, to understand again, fundamentally what the Bible is. Um, one of the things though at the outset, and the, the, we'll come back around to this, is we, we conflate we mix up these two words. I'm perfectly fine with saying the Bible is infallible. I believe that. Infallible meaning it cannot fail. It, it, it cannot fail specifically in the task that it is. it was compiled for, which is a sufficient document for understanding uh, the revelation of God so that we can receive salvation. Like, I think... I think that's a good working definition of infallible. What that does not mean is it does not mean what we usually, what we think of it as is... um, Inerrant. Inerrant, exactly. In that it has no errors or anything wrong in it. Now, again, let's clarify. Because when we say wrong, yeah, we want to say factually wrong. Factually, and so, and that's why we think, oh, wait, no, the Bible said seven days. That means it's inerrant. It's infallible. It has to be seven days. It has to be seven days. It can't be wrong. Morning, the Bible couldn't to evening, be wrong. Evening to morning. That's if right. You want to count the Jewish way. That's right. There, you know, how many years was between uh, you know the uh, Israelites going into exile and getting out, or uh, <laughs> you know uh, being in? How long were they in Egypt? Yeah. You know, like there's lots of different numbers when you do the math, and you know there are scholars that have bent over backwards trying to figure out, and all that by the way can be and is legitimate because those numbers aren't. Again, we're dealing with documents that are thousands of years old, and they counted differently, or they used numbers differently. Yeah, one to tiny count. little example: How many people left Egypt in the Exodus? Yeah, um, estimates say sometimes over two million. Others say hundred thousand, maybe. And, and a lot of it uh, we've heard comes down to uh, this meaning of the Hebrew word "elf," which stands for a thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, in other, tr- in other ancient sources, that word could also stand for the word clans or tribes. And so when it talks about having 5,000, 5 elef, it could really just mean five little clans. Mm-hmm. Totally legitimate translation of the word. Um, the point is, the math doesn't always add up. Plus, yeah. on, a, on a somewhat related note, how many sons of Israel are there? 
How many tribes of Israel do we talk about? Yep. I was, I was getting ready to mention that <laughs> one, too. And another one that we all universally uh, understand, because, th- again, this is part of the narrative when we grow up. Um, how many people did Jesus feed with uh, the loaves and fishes? Well, it was just 5,000, right? I mean, that's no, what it says. That was just the men, right? <laughs> we, we all get that. Like we there do. was a we, much larger crowd yeah, there. We've, we've circulated that enough. We kind of understand that cultural reference now. Exactly. So the same is true with these Hebrew numbers, except they get even more obscure sometimes because, like, you're like what you're talking about. So let's go through the history real quick Plus of of what <laughs> we believe. And maybe we'll even disagree on some of this, and you'll get to hear the dialogue. We'll see. The Bible is. I think. The best way of viewing uh, scripture as, as to what it is, is to view it as a witness. The written witness, a document that is the history of God's people, Israel. And they are writing down their, or maybe even a journal, a journal of a people. Hashtag Daily Growth Journal. Go get one. You can write your own scripture. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. You can record your own history, though. Um, so what the people of God are doing is they're recording the events of God working in and in in amongst them, right? And so it's not that, like, Adam was created and then was like, oh, yeah, hey, God, what just happened seven days ago or however long ago that was and then started writing this down, you know, like... Nobody believes that. Everybody, like we call the first five books of the, the Bible, including Genesis and all the early stuff, uh, the books of Moses, because we believe that it was at least sometime during the time when Moses comes along that he starts really putting this history down, because that's really when Israel becomes a proper people, mm-hmm. it is during the time that, they were a of Moses. they family slash kind of a mix of people yeah, I, I clan, who were captive in Egypt. Exactly, exactly. And so, like, I mean, we, we know about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we get the... Again, Genesis is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. I love it. It's, it's rich with, with history and seeing how God acts to create this people. And so you can see... And again, this is where we're going to be glossing over a lot of stuff, and we could go into more detail about it. But you can see then... Israel leaving Egypt. These are people that have no story now, right? God, and then and then Moses. I mean, they 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 understand this. This isn't new to them. This has been passed down orally throughout uh, the generations. Why they've been in Egypt. This is their story. Moses is simply then pinning this, writing this history down, so that it can be a formal history of who this who we are. And, and how do we know who we are? Don't hear the word history and think objective account of yep. every factual detail that happened. Yep. That's not what they recorded history for. Exactly. Like, and really, you have to think about it in religious terms, religious history. So this really comes down to who are we if we're not the people who lived in Egypt? We are not the people who served the gods of Egypt, Ra and Anubis and all those guys. We are the people who serve Yahweh, the name that has been revealed for the first time to Moses. This is a cornerstone of who the people of God are. And then you watch the rest of the Old Testament as they try to figure that out. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, and and, and that's where you... I mean, just the stru- so like biblical studies nerds like we get off on this stuff, right? It's like it's the structure of Scripture, even the structure. 
itself is is uh, significant because again you have all this history then like right in the middle you have the giving of the law so it's discovering who God is now it's discovering or, or now it's God saying this is the kind of way my people live if you want to be my people this is what you do my people do these things and then we see the people try to live imperfectly very imperfectly try to live and figure out what that means again going back to our our discussion of identity and having patience and trying to figure this stuff out we look back at uh, like you you look at the uh the incident uh the bale of peor with the the children of israel Mm -hmm. this new people think of them as young people trying to follow jesus not really knowing how this thing works they give in listen to the advice of the people around them Mm -hmm. and they start having ritualistic sex trying to appease the gods and make things work for them yeah in their minds they're trying to figure this out well even 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 go back before that right like this is the this is the little nuances that i think that i find so fascinating if you don't believe me Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And what are the people doing down at the, at the camp? They're literally saying, who are we? And Aaron bows to the peer pressure and he says, oh yeah, this, this calf, this is, this is the God that released you. This is fundamentally a story about identity. Mm-hmm. Who are these people? Again, it's step one for a reason. It is. And so you're right. The Bale of Peor is a great example. <laughs> I did a paper on that one too. I love that story, and that it's funny. Now that's like one of your kids doing something really. They need some discipline after that they, one. And they got some discipline. <laughs> they did. <laughs> but but over and over and over again, this is the kind. This is what the judges are, right? This is the, the whole book yep. of Judges is them literally trying to figure out this this system. How do we live according to the statutes of God? Their response to that then becomes. Let's be like every other nation. Let's have a king. If we only had a king, then we could get this thing right. And meanwhile, God is like, nah, you don't want a king, right? So so I'll pause. We're not going to deal with this issue right here, but this is one of those issues that's often brought up. Did God intend for Israel to have a king, yes or no? Because in the law, if you go back to Leviticus, it says, and I don't remember the chapter and verse, but it's in there, trust me. When you choose a king, make sure you do this. Then all of a sudden we get to uh, 1 Samuel and the people come to Samuel and say, hey, we want a king to be like every other nation. And Samuel, you know, speaking on behalf of God says, uh, no, you don't. <laughs> this is, you know, and God gets very angry. He's like, these, this people is, they are assaulting me. They're not assaulting you, Samuel. They're assaulting me. They're throwing me off. He comes back. He says the same thing again. And God relinquishes and said, okay, that's fine. These people want to be like everybody else. I am going to. Uh, I, this is again. We're not going to get into this, but I'll. I'll get. I, I like this way of viewing it. I'm going to bear their sin, and we will appoint a king. <laughs> and so he goes on. We 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 appoint Saul. We kind of know what happens with Saul. Then David comes along. You know, David is a, a man after God's own heart. You know, all that. We we build the temple. God has a a permanent place to live. 
By the way, he didn't want that either at first. He liked oh, the goodness. tabernacle. You're making me want to draw this thread all the way through the entire I know. Scripture. We'll be here all day. <laughs> and so this is, but this is the point. I want to do, we will do more theology in progress type episodes like this where we'll take certain themes in scripture, certain theological musings, if you will, and we, we will develop them a little bit because I think this is essential for discipleship. If you don't get this, now you don't have to get this in order to be saved or to be a Christian. Let's following Christ is not about knowledge. Again, what knowing about this, what knowing about the significance of the tabernacle and God saying, I want to dwell amongst my people. My whole goal in this thing and in creating Adam and walking amongst him and Eve in the garden is to be with them. And yet sin wretched our relationship away. I'm going to make a new covenant with you so that I can be with you, but my presence is so magnificent and, and pure and love and holy that it would destroy you to see it. You're going to put all these regulations in place, but I still want to be with you. I still want to, and, and, and by the way, I want to be in a tabernacle, not a temple. Why? Because my people are a moving people. I don't want to be a stationary God. <laughs> I want to move. That's right. The whole earth is my kingdom. Like, it's not just, oh, yep, Egypt. Those are the gods of Egypt. These are the gods of Palestine. Yahweh is the God of the earth, and he wants to be amongst his people. For those of you, you may see where this is going already. But so, like, those are significant themes. To know that about God then changes the way in which you follow Christ when you see then in the New Testament the veil of the Holy of Holies being torn and Jesus saying, I must leave so that the Holy Spirit can come and indwell you. This is, in Scripture, the fulfillment of the thing that God started in the beginning of Scripture, wanting to dwell amongst his people. That is what the coming of the Holy Spirit represents. And it's why, by the way, there's like the rushing of the wind and the tongues of fire. If you go back and you look at like the uh, the consecration of the tabernacle and the consecration of the temple, same things are happening. Mm-hmm. These Rushing winds, these big towers of smoke and fire are coming down and and filling the temple. That's what the day of Pentecost is representing, is that the Holy Spirit is taking his rightful place in the temple he always wanted, his people. Which is why my favorite is how it all comes to to a close in the end in Revelation. Like, last one of the last things you see is a voice crying out, finally... The dwelling place of God is with man. Mm-hmm. Purpose right there. Done. Entire thing. Boom. You go from the very beginning. God walks with Adam, tries to be with him. Everything in between is about God trying to dwell with his people. Absolutely. And so, like, that's just one. That's We just thrown out. And that's a big thread. But that's just one of such threads that's drawn out through Scripture. Again, underst- and so understanding what Scripture is helps us put those pieces together, helps us see that that is a narrative that is in motion in the whole time, rather than just saying, well, this verse says that, and that verse says this, and so, you know, I guess I have to live my life according to those those two verses that told me, you know, not to do something. And and, and you miss the point. Yeah. So now that doesn't make sense. Like, if the Bible tells me, if the Old Testament told me not to lie, and then Paul mentioned something about lying and being adulterous and all that other stuff later on, well, I guess that just means I don't need to do those things. And you miss the point. It doesn't make sense when Jesus says, all of the law is fulfilled in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Because also then Paul, by the way, in Romans says that we fulfill the law by loving others. If we were just to love others, we would fulfill the law. We would need no law if we would love each other. We don't love each other, we need a law. (laughs) Kind of keeps our sin nature in check. Anyway, sorry, I know we're getting, I'm getting (laughs) hyped. I'm getting hyped. I love this stuff. Anyway, so so let's let's break down then the Old Testament, New Testament, just real quick, right? So we've got this is the Old Testament then becomes that 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 is the Jewish history of how God has worked in their life. Then we have like this three hundred years of prophetic silence period right before we pick up with Jesus. Have you ever read the Bible and you're like like uh, uh, chronologically we end after the book of Ezra? That's when like the last events take place after Israel had come back from exile. Um, they're trying to build up the the temple with Nehemiah, or they're trying to build Jerusalem back up and the temple back up. That's what we have, like Nehemiah, and they're building the wall, and they got a sword in one hand and a hammer in the other, all that sort of stuff. And we have lots of lots of prophets, lo- prophetic books, right? Woe to you, and woe to you, and Saddam's going to be thrown into the sea, and all that sort of stuff. We kind of skip those a lot of times, and you know, reading the prophets is very profitable. No pun intended. <laughs> I believe if you're able to like read them along with a commentary so you can couch them in the history and you know sort of understand, understand the what the context is. Otherwise, yeah, you're you're going to try to read that and apply it straight to your life. And I think that's a mistake. Especially when you get to some of like the stuff in Ezekiel and Dry Bones. It's just Well, that's not but well, I'm thinking more yeah, like I the, know what you're thinking. <laughs> the woes to the other yeah, nations. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets very weird. Like, don't apply that stuff to your life. Yeah. Like, like just as the words are on the that's that it's bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then we so then we have Jesus that shows up. Jesus doesn't say, "Okay, here's the New Testament, guys. Have at it." it, it not it, it's not a. Oh, by the way, you you know the Old Testament. Okay, we're gonna set that aside now. I'm gonna show you a new thing, which we kind of think sometimes especially when we look at the last supper and he says this is a new covenant yep in other words the old one is gone yep that's not the case it's not the case and so this is where again understanding and being able to draw out all of these theological threads of of all those other places because we can't forget jesus comes said matthew 5 i have not come to abolish the law i've come to fulfill it so what does it mean to be the fulfillment of of that law. And then how how does that how does Jesus being the fulfillment of the law apply to us? What what do we do with that now? So again, we're not going to talk about that in this episode. That'll be another episode. Um so we have the life of Jesus. And again, the the life the four gospels that we have, the four gospels accounts of Jesus's life are being written well after his life. So it's not like Matthew, Mark, Luke and John who all didn't necessarily, you know, anyway, they're not all disciples yeah. following Jesus, aren't following them around, writing down, okay, oh yeah, okay, now Jesus, uh, yeah, that looks like wine, so he turned that to water to wine, uh, he healed that, par- you know, it's not it's not like that. <laughs> yeah, at best, we're looking at like 40 years after Jesus. Exactly. For like now, the how many earliest. Of you, like, if you've got 40 years of memory on you right now, like you can think back and remember something that happened 40 years ago. How well are you going to be able to record those events that actually happened? That's right. And again, so they have a different understanding of what they're doing when they're writing a history book. Like, I think Luke, Luke probably, because he was, a, he's a Gentile, number one, and number two, he was a doctor. So he is one of the most educated 
biblical writers that we have, he is writing as closely to a first century historical perspective that we have in, in, in scripture, as far as like the, the, the themes and the, the organizational structure goes. And it's nothing like what we think of as a as a history book, right? Like, I mean, we we, we talk about and we cite people like Josephus, and because uh, again, he references people like Jesus and and a lot of the other first century events that goes on in the Bible. Um, and, and and again, like they they're closer to what we think of as history, but they still embellish certain parts or stories in order to prove or set a certain point in a certain light. And so again, understanding the ins and outs of that, again, it's not our, it's not our, uh, it's not our goal here, but it's helpful to understand that why are all four books not in a perfect chronological order? Why don't they all mimic each other? Just let it be like, you just let it all kind of be said in this. Everybody has a purpose when they tell a story. Yeah. Like no matter what story you, you have told, are telling or ever will tell, you will have a purpose in telling that story. And the biblical writers are no different. Now, that said, the reason they were telling the stories was, part of what we referenced earlier, because they were inspired to do so by the Holy Spirit. And in a way, that sets apart Scripture as different. Mm -hmm. The... The purpose in Matthew's gospel, while it's still inspired by the Holy Spirit just as much as Mark and Luke and John, is very different from the purpose in John's gospel. I think, I think for, the, uh, for the average Christian, picking up the reason for any one of the gospel writers is going to be easiest in John. He explicitly says it. Um, these things are written so that you might believe on Jesus Christ and by believing have life. Um, I wrote, in other words, I wrote the book so that you could believe Jesus is who he said he is. Mm-hmm. And that by believing, you you get eternal life. Um, that was not Matthew's purpose necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was kind of the same, but it was a little bit different. Matthew's, but he's writing to a different audience. He's writing to a different audience. And so the things that he's going to go about saying and, and recording are going to be different than what John writes about Mm -hmm. they're gonna have a different purpose so that's why you see like in john jesus goes to the temple quite early Mm -hmm. in the other gospels he goes to the temple quite late yep why (laughs) exactly because they have a different purpose in recording the events that's right and again john records miracles that none of the other authors record is a very different yeah all of it so again without going too deeply into all of that sort of stuff because i want to i want to visit inspiration here uh, in just a second. So anyway, you have the life of Jesus being recorded now. At this point, you've already got churches spring. They're all over the Roman Empire at this point. And you've got uh, apostles going around, traveling, preaching, planting churches, and problems are cropping up like crazy in all the church. Again, there's, there's literally nothing, especially for a lot of these uh, new churches, which are all Gentile or, or, or mostly Gentile or Gentile Jew integrated, and they're trying to figure out how to work with these new racial ethnic relations where the Jews saw Gentiles as being very unclean. They're eating bacon over there. We're not allowed to eat bacon. It's, you know, it's like one of the worst things that we can do because it violates our period, all that sort of stuff. 
This is where then we have a lot of the rest of the New Testament, and Paul is a significant contributor of that. Um, but again, with uh, with Peter and First, Second, Third John, Revelation, these are letters being written to the various churches to help instruct and guide them in what it means to actually live out the Scripture. And again, I think Paul, the letters of Paul are a really good example of this because he is. You know, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was very learned man. This guy has like the equivalent of, uh, like one of our guests said, uh, Kevin, right? He's got the equivalent of like two PhDs and he understands the Old Testament scriptures better than anybody. And he's not trying to teach any of these churches that he had planted something new or different. He's trying to literally teach them what the scriptures are saying. And for him, the scriptures were the Old Testament, not his own writings, that's, think about that. It's not his own writings yet. We, when we're talking about Scripture, when Paul and the other apostles are going around writing, they're still talking about the Old Testament. So, I think then this is, let's, let's talk about how we get from an Old Testament as the only Scripture to adding these 27 other books that are now part of Scripture. Why those books? Why 66? The Catholics have more. Why just those letters, right? Paul wrote other letters. Why didn't any of them uh, fit in there? I'm sure Thomas probably wrote a letter here and there. Why? Why he isn't he? He wrote a gospel. Apparently, <laughs> he didn't write a gospel. He didn't. It was for pseudonym. <laughs> pseudonym. Exactly. Somebody. Somebody wrote a gospel and put his name on it, which um, was common, by the way, not malicious. Yeah. Exactly. Very common thing. Um, but so, like all these, uh, all these guys are probably writing letters and passing them around and getting inspiration and instruction from them. What do we do with that? So you brought up inspiration. Let's talk about inspiration because you said, and this is another one of those things I think we take for granted. The, those writer, the, the gospel writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's why they're scripture. Let's talk about how we know this was, these writers were inspired. And it's not because they just went into some kind of trance and there were three witnesses that signed their name on the dotted line saying, yes, I witnessed the trance. Why is it? Yeah. And I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Earlier we were talking about this and I had the scene from Fiddler on the Roof where he opens up with uh, trying to answer why they do the things that they, they do. Mm. <laughs> he says, I can answer in one word. Tradition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it all comes down to that, though. It does. We accept these things as inspired because over time, they've proven themselves to be valuable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Yep. In other words, the track record with this things, these things points to the Holy Spirit's involvement in the creation of these things. Mm -hmm. It's why we have Paul's letter to the Corinth Paul's letter, two letter, two of Paul's letters to the Corinthians, but not some of the other letters to the Corinthians. We suspect there were four. Mm -hmm. Um it's why Paul says, I'm totally blanking on where this is. He basically says, hey, when you guys get my letter and you read it, swap with the other church. You read the letter I sent them and, and let them read the letter I sent you. Yeah. We don't have that other letter. Yeah. Um, why not? Because over time, it didn't prove to be as useful mm -hmm. for rebuking, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness like this one did. Think about, here, here's a good modern day example. It's not the same, but it's a, it's a good example. So we have asked many of our authors, if you could require every Christian to read three books, which would they be? Undoubtedly, what has shown up on at least 
eighty percent of the author, or the the guests that we've asked, is C.S. Lewis's *Mere Christianity* shows up on that list. It would show up on my list. <laughs> that, it, it, but that's a good example of one of these letters that just sort of floats to the top of like, man, this thing right here is really, really helpful for learning how to live the Christian life. So, you know, don't read that, uh, you know, third Corinthians, read, read this first Corinthians letter. That's, that's going to mm-hmm. help you more. And so that's the one that gets copied. Well, you know, it's like, oh man, Josh, you, you left your uh, coffee on my copy of first Corinthians. Now I've got to pay somebody 10 pieces of gold to copy another one. Right. It's like, oh, well, third Corinth, that's fine. We'll just leave that one. And so, you know, like, <laughs> again, this is hypothetical, but this is sort of the process Again, they don't have printing presses. All these things do have to be hand copied. Um, they have to be written down. The other thing I would like to point out that I, that I think this is very uncomfortable for a lot of us Protestants. This isn't this isn't an issue for Catholics, but I do think tradition plays a big part in this thing of just the witness of the church. Let's set aside Scripture for a second as being the only source, and let's not forget that. The church itself, for two thousand years, yes, is a source. In the way that this happened, again, that seemed like a big ask, especially if you know much about church history. But so think about this, right? A guy named Peter comes up to you and he's telling you about this dude named Jesus, and you're like, "Yeah, so what? How do you know?" He's like, "Cause I was there." What? Yeah, I went into this guy's tomb and he wasn't there, and then he just appeared in my house the other day, and you're like. Are you kidding me? And then like, again, for some reason, you believe this. By the way, Jesus said that that's the Holy Spirit is why you would believe another person telling you that. Okay, you're much more likely to believe that that's Peter. Like, okay, you're Peter. He was there. He was in the tomb. But what about that guy that Peter just told? Are you going to believe him? And you're going to be like, he's going to be like, dude, guess what? This guy, Jesus, he came back from the dead. He died. God raised him from the dead. How do you know? Peter told me. Peter? Yeah, he was there. He was in the tomb. Okay, And on and on this goes for 2,000 years. This is what it means to be a witness to the work of Christ in the world. This is God's revelation. Ultimate revelation of himself is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what we do fundamentally as Christians is we, our mere presence as the church and in what we do and indeed in witness, uh, yeah, this is going to sound redundant, indeed in witness is to witness, right? And again, that's why I fundamentally like to look at Scripture then as a witness. It's part of that witness. It's the written history of of God's work in us. Now, we've got 2,000 years more of history that is just, it's just us. Now, we don't call it Scripture, but there's lots of other church history books that we we read and, and, and we can gain knowledge and information from. So then let's 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 talk about because I know we're trying to finish up here real quick so that we don't talk forever about this issue, and, and and it's more along the lines of what you you were just talking about. Why those sixty six books and not all of the other books, and why aren't we still adding to it? Because couldn't we just keep adding? Why isn't mere Christianity? It's proven to be fairly useful That's right. for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And I taped it to the back cover of my Bible. It's not in it, but I taped it to the back cover. So. <laughs> Again, joke. <laughs> so why isn't it? Again, there's a bunch of these little councils. I know I'm talking a lot. I'm going to let Josh talk, fill in some of this too here. There's some of these councils where they came together, and there's a lot of these kinds of problems, right? Like, okay, well, you know, I got I got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then this guy over here is like, oh, yeah, but I got the book of Thomas. You got to get the book of Thomas, right? That's the one. And what about, 
you know, but Arius got some teachings over here. Like, you know, he's kind of like, oh, Jesus really wasn't uh, a man. He was really God. You know, he looked like a man. And it's like, that doesn't really line up with what Paul is writing over here. I don't understand. So they all get together, right? And they decide, again, we believe this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All of you people who are not supporting the apostles' teachings, and that's in what they originally wrote. The firsthand. The firsthand accounts of those people who walked with Jesus that fully attest and support everything that we know from the Old Testament scriptures. Everything else is not scripture, but we will include these things because they fundamentally surround and support the main witness of scripture. Again, scripture at that time, so they become our new scripture. That's what we have as the Bible. And throughout history, those things have proven to be useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Yeah. And yeah, long story short, that's why we believe these books are inspired. (laughs) And that's not to mean that any other book, any other person's perspective can't be helpful as well. I mean, that's why 68 episodes on this podcast, we've talked to 60-some guests. That's right. Because we believe that what they have is valuable for our own lifestyles of discipleship. Um, maybe even in some cases authoritative, not in the same way that Scripture yeah. is, but people can be, a, a person can be an authority on the way things work in, in the Christian life. Absolutely. Uh, not a problem with that at all. Fact, well, that that is built into the institution of our church. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely. the whole purpose of having <laughs> our ministerial uh, structures set up the way that they are, so that they can stand as a spiritual authority uh, over us. Not, not again, not in a dictatorial sense, but in a sense that these are the people. They're mature. They've walked before us, and they. They, they they act in our best interest, and so we, we've allowed them a position to speak into our lives on behalf of God at times. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. That doesn't mean we take everything that they do and go jump off a bridge with it. But we allow them to just do what I just... They can speak to our lives. And, and we build relationships with them, and, and, and then we can work out our salvation with them. And they help guide us. So let's wrap it all up then in one final question. It, that's, a, that's a great segue into this. Why is the Bible authoritative for us? We've talked about what it is. We've talked about how it came about. We've talked about why, why it's infallible, what the purpose was in writing all these different things, how it was written a long time ago. Why should we take what's written, what we have right in front of us, as authoritative for following Jesus? So, I might not be answering your question exactly right. I asked it in a way that would be intended for you to not answer it the way that I wanted it to. (laughs) (laughs) Well spoken. (laughs) I would say the reason why I pick up my Bible almost every day and read it is because it represents the witness and history of what God has done in his people, a people that I am now part of. So I can pick that book up and read it and learn and understand, learn about God 
for who he is, his character, how he wants, what he wants to do with his people, again, which I am now part of, so that I can be swept up into this life with him. And again, if all of scripture, we didn't even really get into it, we alluded it to, points to Jesus, if all of it is a witness unto Jesus, that is the best source of information for me to learn about the man whom I profess to follow. If I'm a disciple, I'm a learner of Jesus, that's going to be the best source for me to get information. Because I trust you, Josh. I love your experience. I want to hear from it and I want to work stuff out. I've got other mentors and authorities in my life and they've had and they've had and they've had and they've had all the way back to Jesus. That's all great and wonderful. But none of those people in my life have actually talked with Jesus. (laughs) The scriptures come closest. Mm -hmm. So they are going to provide me an invaluable source of information. Not so that I can know simply things about him, but so that I can know who he is, so that I can know him. I think that's the the key for me. It's really about the relationship. You know, I mean, I've talked about this before. I think the biggest struggle that I have in the Christian life is one of identity, recognizing that I really am a son of God. Um, and for me, the the biggest reason I read Scripture is because I've been so captivated by Jesus, the man, the actual living, breathing man who walked this earth. I've been so captivated by him that I want to learn everything I can about him. Throughout history, the last 2,000 years, everybody who's lived after Jesus, who met Jesus, saw him and wrote down things, and everybody since then, they've said you can trust the scriptures because they accurately represent what I know to be true about Jesus. Jesus himself said, you can trust the scriptures because they accurately represent a revelation of who I am. Because of all of these other people throughout church history, and because of Jesus himself saying that I can trust scripture as a, as a way to understand who he is, And given that I want to know this man that I've been so captivated by, I will read scripture because I want to learn who he is. I want to understand everything about him. I want to understand the way he acted, the way he thought, the way that he lived his life. I mean, we talked with uh, Gary Moon a couple weeks ago who wrote the book uh, Apprenticeship with Jesus. Um, That really, to me, captures what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. I want to I want to be so I'm gonna use the word captivated again, but it's I think it's a good word. I want to be so captivated by this man that I organize everything in my life around him. Uh every single part of my life when I wake up in the morning, which I'm terrible at doing when I wake up in the morning, I'm not a morning person. Uh, the way that I drive, the way that I think, the way that I interact with with other people, every little thing, I, I wanna I wanna organize it around. Can I can I follow Jesus in this moment? And Scripture is a great way for me to learn more about the way that Jesus lived his life, and the way that the way that God interacts with His people, and. 
for me, that's why scripture is authoritative. That's why I'm going to listen to it because throughout history, it's been proven to be true. And it's, in my own personal history, it's been proven to be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would ask you, I guess, as a call or a challenge to, um, to spend some time, to spend some time thinking about why scripture is authoritative in your life. Have you let it be authoritative? And are you missing the person of Christ in that reasoning? If you're missing it, I would again challenge you to do a little bit deeper looking into scripture itself because scripture is a testimony to who Jesus is. Um, it, it, it can't be it can't be left without. Um, if you've had these questions, I hope this podcast has helped you think through these issues. I hope it's clarified our random ramblings. We're very passionate about this stuff, um, but th- there is so much here. And we're condensing down years of experience and study into hopefully what will be about an hour's long podcast. <laughs> um, if you, you know, if you're still struggling with this, maybe you came into this podcast never thinking about this and you just push play, and now you're like, oh, wait a second, there's a whole lot more here than I thought. Um, we want to know. Let us know where you're at. If you're struggling, again, look, we want to de stigmatize a lot of this stuff too. Again, we as a church, as Christians, will never be able to grow in our understanding and and, and in in a place where we can actually work out our salvation if we leave this with a stigma. If you are having questions and doubts about this, don't run from them. Lean into them. You don't even have to put it publicly on some website. You can email us. That's right. Literally, Chris and I are the the only ones who will ever read this. Absolutely. And if you say, I don't want anybody else to read this, that's great. We will never let it, we will never share it with anybody. We'll just talk about it and we'll we'll reply. We'll talk. That's right. Uh, Dailygrowthdiscipleship at gmail.com. Easy. Just let us know. Ask us questions. Absolutely. We love it. That's what we're here for. We want to do it. We can even schedule calls, right? (laughs) If you want to do like a coaching call or, uh, you know, more of a one-on-one conversation, we can do that. We would love to have those conversations with you. Um, Do not suffer in silence. Do not let your doubts go without being probed because your doubts, I believe, are a gateway to what uh, an area that God is going to do something incredible in your life if you will lean into those and be willing to ask those tough questions. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.